0: Welcome to episode 15, um, first episode of the new season. It's very exciting, first proper episode.
1: This episode comes with a content warning because it includes mentions and discussion of the death of a parent, miscarriage, and child neglect, and what, from a 21st century perspective, is certainly verbal and emotional abuse.
0: Yeah, with a certain person in this narrative that I think I might be talking a bit about, there is... I would say some mild physical abuse as well. Mm-hmm. Mild isn't the right word, but we'll come to it.
1: Yeah. So we don't get graphic about any of this, but uh, just wanted to have it on your radar and uh, proceed with caution if you're listening with littles, I guess.
0: Yeah, and if it's something that you're personally affected by, maybe, you know, be somewhere comfy with a nice hot chocolate or something. Be kind to yourself.
1: Yes. Be kind. Skip this episode if you want to. Yeah, we won't
0: hold it against you.
1: Uh, okay.
0: Speaking of holding things against us...
1: (laughs) (laughs) Remember that time, way back in the dawn of 2017, when I said Mary Shelley was not a Victorian writer? (laughs) Well, we're about to complicate that declaration. This is Victorian Scribblers, an informal exploration of the lives and work of lesser-known Victorian writers. I'm Dr. Courtney Floyd, a specialist in 19th century literature and print culture. And I'm Eleanor Dunville, a PhD student
0: in Victorian literature and publishing at Loughborough University in the UK.
1: get things wrong sometimes, but this one's been eating away at me since I published the episode pretty much. Um, To be fair, I did retract the claim a little bit in episode seven, Francis Milton Trollope part two, but as we started planning this season and as I participated in last year's Frankenreads, which was a great event that was put on all over the world, sponsored by the Keats Shelley archive, um, celebrating the 200th anniversary of the publication of Frankenstein. It occurred to me that while Mary Shelley is a well-known author, her Victorian writing is really pretty obscure outside of certain circles. Uh, so today we're going to tell you about Mary Shelley's life before and more importantly for our purposes after the publication of Frankenstein. Well, we'll start, we'll start to do that anyway.
0: Yeah, but first, let's take a trip around the world in Mary Shelley's lifetime.
1: In 1789, the French Revolution kicks off the Napoleonic Wars. These will continue going on until 1815.
0: In January of 1797, John Hetherington starts a riot in London by wearing his new invention, the top hat in public. In
1: 1798, Edward Jenner publishes his work on smallpox vaccination.
0: In 1800, Alessandro Volta constructs a voltaic pile, an early electric battery.
1: In 1804, morphine is first isolated from opium.
0: In 1809, Sir Humphrey Davy demonstrates the first electric arc lamp.
1: On the 11th of March, 1811, a group of framework netters assembled in Nottingham, specifically in Arnold for local listeners, uh, and destroyed- Perfect! (laughs) I'm not local. (laughs) And destroyed 63 frames, quote, belonging to those hosiers who had rendered themselves the most obnoxious to the workmen. This was the beginning of the Luddite movement.
0: Yeah in case you haven't been able to guess I am the person who is local to that area um, so I added the note just saying that it's in Arnold but it won't mean much to anyone outside the East Midlands. In related news in February 1812 Byron gives his first address to the House of Lords in defense of the Luddites. Um, yeah I think this is pretty cool basically the Luddites had been operating on Byron's land and he's from Nottinghamshire um, and he basically said yeah I'm pro them it's fine.
1: Wow, it's a time that Byron did something good.
0: <laughs> I know, it's so unique that I thought I'd just highlight it. In
1: 1815, Davies added it again. He patents the safety lamp in October of that year.
0: In 1816, René Linek invents a stethoscope.
1: On the 16th of August, 1819, Calvary charged protesters in Manchester. This becomes known as the Peterloo Massacre. In
0: April 1820, Hans Christian Ørsted discovers the relationship between electricity and magnetism.
1: In 1825, Gregor McGregor, as Eleanor notes, untrustworthy on name alone, causes the first stock market crash in London by issuing a £300,000 loan, equivalent to £24 million in 2018. There was
0: no more information about that, I just found
1: it fascinating,
0: I was like, I need to know more. Mm -hmm. If you know more, write in, please. In 1827, John Walker invents the first friction match, and he calls this the Lucifer.
1: On the 26th of May 1828, a feral child, Caspar Hauser, is discovered in Nuremberg, Germany. He claimed to have grown up alone in a dungeon. Yeah, fitting
0: for a Shelley episode. Mm-mm.
1: In 1831,
0: electromagnetic induction is discovered by both Michael Faraday and Joseph Henry, but Faraday publishes first.
1: It's a case with so many inventions,
0: isn't it? Yeah.
1: In 1833, Ada Lovelace is introduced to Charles Babbage. In
0: 1834, Faraday publishes his laws for electrolysis.
1: On the 2nd of January, 1839, Louis de takes his first photograph of the moon. On March 30th, 1842, anesthesia is used in
0: surgery for the first time, which is so much later than you'd hope or expect it to be.
1: I feel like one of the first was Queen Victoria during childbirth. In 1843, Ada Lovelace writes the world's first computer program. Also in that year, Richard March Ho invents the steam-powered rotary printing press. In 1846, railway mania reaches its highest point. On the 25th of May 1850, a hippo called Obeish arrives at London Zoo, the first in Europe since Roman times.
0: In 1851, the Great Exhibition, masterminded by Prince Albert, opens at the Crystal Palace in London, and the Crystal Palace itself was part of the exhibition, designed by Joseph Caxton.
1: When this airs, it will have been exactly 222 years ago, on August 30th, 1797, that Mary Godwin was born to two members of London's literati, Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin, the author of A Geminal Work of Women's Rights, Vindication of the Rights of Woman*, among many, many other things. Uh, and William Godwin, one of the most renowned political writers of the day.
0: Of course, she's a Virgo.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Do we know what Godwin is?
0: My very important aside.
1: um... Oh, sorry, you were talking about Mary Shelley, yeah.
0: Oh, yeah, I don't know about Wollstonecraft.
1: Now I need to know.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I know, I'm Googling it now. So Mary Wollstonecraft is a Taurus, which is surprising.
1: Interesting. I'm on Godwin. I've almost got him. He's a Pisces. Pisces. (laughs)
0: possess <laughs> sad little pisces boy
1: so you know those fateful moments when in retrospect it feels like lightning flashed and thunder rolled mary's birth was that but literally a comet trailed over london in the days leading up to her birth like the cosmos was trying to make sure we all knew someone very important had just arrived Sorry, not sorry for the melodrama there. <laughs> I'm a Mary Shelley fangirl. Also, it's just so fitting. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it really is. Like, not only was the comment there, but like people really noticed it, and, you know, probably like there's been speculation that her parents were like, ooh, it's a good sign, and things like that, you know?
0: <sighs> yeah.
1: But fate isn't always kind. Ten days after giving birth to her second daughter, Mary Wollstonecraft died of pupil fever. At that time, actually, Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin, but that's a mouthful of a name. (laughs) Yeah. She'd had trouble passing her afterbirth, and the doctor who removed it didn't wash his hands, because doctors pretty much didn't do that ever until around 1847, and even then it didn't really catch on for another 20 years. Um, So in not washing his hands, he introduced harmful bacteria into Wollstonecraft's system,
0: Yeah, I actually read an article that said the particular illness that she died of was basically, it was quite common for this to be transferred to living patients by doctors who'd come straight from autopsies. So yeah, I thought it was quite fitting in the context of, especially Frankenstein, that Wollstonecraft died from bacteria transferred to her by a corpse, or from a corpse, not by a corpse, that would be extra creepy.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, it was really common. There were super high um, uh, maternal death rates, or yeah, ch- rates of death in childbirth, um, in in both Britain and the U.S. at that time, because of this very reason. Doctors would go from working on corpses to working on actual living humans.
0: Hooray for germ theory!
1: Yeah, I mean they wouldn't. They didn't know that was the cause. Yeah, so. <laughs> But it's still fitting enough for yeah, us. Yeah, they
0: weren't deliberately going, uh, heck it, I'll, I'll just go to the next one. Yeah. But yeah. Still not great.
1: So in the wake of her mother's death, Mary's own life wavered in the balance, but her mother's friend, Mariah Reveille, managed to nurse her back to health. As if already angry at the world for her loss, baby Mary screamed incessantly by all reports. Her father, Godwin, was nevertheless convinced that she was a genius in the making. How could she not be with a father like himself and a mother like the Mary Wollstonecraft? That was pretty much everyone's opinion, uh, just FYI.
0: Yeah, and she basically says the same thing in the introduction to Frankenstein.
1: Yeah, I mean, like, if you've grown up hearing that from literal birth, then of course you start believing the hype about yourself at some point, right? (laughs) Yeah. So Godwin asked his buddy, William Nicholson, who was an expert in physiognomy, to examine Mary to prove his hunch about her. And I'm not sure if we've mentioned it on the podcast before. Probably. The odds are that we probably have. Um, but physiognomy was a really popular uh, pseudoscience in the late 18th century and throughout the 19th century. I mean, they didn't consider it a pseudoscience. They considered it a science. Um and it was a pretty bleep and racist one at that. Basically, the thought was that the shape of the skull and the face could tell someone with the know-how all about an individual's personality, character, and intellect. And it turned out that certain cough European cough types of um facial and skull constructs came to represent the most intelligent, right? Hmm. Um, yeah. That's convenient. <laughs> So, Mary's papa's hunch was confirmed by Nicholson's examination. He reported that Mary showed signs of, quote, considerable memory and intelligence, plus a, quote, quick sensibility. He cautioned, though, probably taking all of that screaming into account, that she could be, quote, petulant in resistance. (laughs) Though her skull was still forming, as a literal infant, Nicholson wasn't all wrong. But just how true his words would prove remains to be seen.
0: Yeah, I feel like that's a pretty good instinct, A, when both of the parents have been intellectuals, but B, when you're brought up in a social situation where you're going to have access to education and you've got a parent who's mm-hmm. committed to providing that education, that's probably a pretty fair, you know, that's probably pretty safe bet, gambling that.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. While Mary was her papa's firstborn, she was actually Wollstonecraft's second daughter. Mary's older sister, Fanny, was the love child, or not quite love child, um, sadly, of Wollstonecraft and Gilbert Imlay. And I say not quite love because while Wollstonecraft was passionately in love with Gilbert Imlay, uh, Imlay was a bit of a scoundrel and basically abandoned her multiple times. And also, like, uh, I don't know. There's a lot of drama. So at one point he takes up another mistress because the two never get married. And Wollstonecraft loves him so much, and is so desperate to be with him, that she offers to live with them together. Um, So it was kind of like a a one-sided thing, sadly, for her.
0: Yeah, there's basically, I can't can't remember what it's called, I think it's Letters in France and Wollstonecraft basically writes these memoirs of her time in France in the seventeen nineties during the French Revolution. Or towards the start of the French Revolution. Uh, but then she also goes to Scandinavia. So I've trailed off.
1: <laughs> Letters in Sweden, Norway and Denmark. Yes,
0: yeah, so I wasn't France at all. It just was the background of the French Revolution that I was remembering.
1: Yes. Yeah. So that the introduction to this, if you find the Oxford World's Classics edition, is really great.
0: Yeah, I have the same edition. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I don't think there are that many different editions of it floating around, to be honest. No, probably not. Sadly, um, as a papa, Godwin had no qualms about favoritism, though he probably rationalized it to himself that he wasn't like being subjective and emotional. Um, he was a big proponent of rationalism. Uh, so while Fanny... Um, Wollstonecraft's love child, was cared for and included in family activities, Mary was the one who got encouragement, praise, and emotional intimacy from their father. To Godwin's credit, Mary was very bright, so she sort of, you know, drew that kind of response to herself, but I suspect Fanny's comparative, quote, dullness was something of a self-fulfilling prophecy. There's something called stereotype threat, where if people believe a thing about you, and you know that they believe a thing about you, at some point you're more likely to start sort of fulfilling that um, belief. So it's a thing that's often observed in classrooms, for example, where there are stereotypes about people of different genders and ethnicities performing differently in different subjects. So girls aren't necessarily bad at math, but since they know there's a stereotype that they are, they tend to perform worse under that the pressure of that stereotype, for example. And I think that's probably part of what's happening yeah. with Fanny during her life, because expectations for her are low, even though she has the same brilliant mother as her younger sister.
0: Yeah, and I think that's probably the social causes that I was just talking about with Mary as well, working the opposite way for Fanny where Godwin isn't as invested in proving that she's a genius and maybe doesn't pay as much attention to her education as he does Mary's.
1: Right. So Mary could read by the age of four, um, and I've noted in parentheses here, which is when I was reading too, we're twins! Um, Anecdote has it that she learned to read with her father by tracing the letters on her mother's gravestone on their almost daily visits. Um, I doubt there were enough letters on that gravestone to teach her the entire alphabet, Um, (laughs) although there were many.
0: Yeah, and I think in the, it won't be in this episode, but in the next episode we're probably going to go back to that grave because there's a lot of folklore around Mary in the graveyard and, quite frankly, it's fascinating.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: Goth AF is what I would say.
1: Yeah, yeah. (sighs) I visited it last year when I was in um, London. And, and I mean, it's just a gorgeous little uh, churchyard too. So on the way to some delicious vegan mac and cheese.
0: Oh, wow. I've never been, and I really should. It's that thing where you don't go to tourist stuff, near. Yeah,
1: the, the, the what is it? The the second location. Because
0: it's St. Pancras, right?
1: Yeah, the second location of um, of uh, the Temple of Satan is like walking distance from there. Oh, yeah so it was like a double like a two birds with one stone i went to get to dinner and like stopped it yeah, was, so, yeah. ideal evening for me just <laughs> fyi
0: sounds perfect um, but yeah we'll talk about that in the next episode
1: so in their townhouse at number 29 polygon in summerstown which was a country suburb of london at that point uh, godwin mary and fanny fell into a life of routine Godwin worked at his writing until 1 p.m. every day, roughly, had lunch, and then read things like Charles Perrault's Mother Goose and La Fontaine's Fables to the girls. And lest you think those books are basically kittens and rainbows, let me read you a piece from a Victorian edition of Mother Goose I happen to possess. I'll share pictures because um, this edition that I have is illustrated by Kate Greenaway and it's gorgeous.
0: Yeah, I think I remember seeing. Little bits of her illustration. Oh, I've seen Kate Greenaway's illustration, but of this particular book.
1: Yeah, it's amazing. Let me see. Okay. So, this one, like having never read older versions of Mother Goose before, this one really struck me when I found this um, edition in a thrift shop. So, tell, tale, tit, your tongue shall be slit, and all the dogs in the town shall have a little bit. Um, there are a lot cuter ones, but...
0: <laughs> yeah, um, so I don't know how common this is in the UK, but I'm definitely familiar with this. And the tidbit that I would add is that this is a song. I'm much less musically inclined than you, but it goes in the... I, and I can't remember the words at the top of my head, but it's like, tail, tail, tit, your tongue shall be split. Da, da, da. Like it, So you sing it to that tune, and then you don't okay, really think yeah. about how awful the words are
1: uh that makes it even more frightening i think (laughs) but
0: yeah it definitely does and i think there's a reason why in my head i only remember the first line yeah it's basically like victorian snitches get stitches right
1: yeah absolutely so i mean life lessons but in a very sort of threatening manner um You're right, Victorians. (laughs) Snitches get stitches. (laughs) Between their days of routine, of visiting Mary Wollstonecraft's grave and reading frightening nursery rhymes, the Little Godwin family um, also received many literary visitors. So even though Godwin's fame as a great political writer was sort of on the wane as new political ideas kind of took over and as his own form of radicalism starts more and more to become um conservatism in his old age he still had a bunch of friends out there in the biz right one of whom was samuel taylor Coleridge, who you may remember if you've listened to episode one also visited wilkie collins parents in the 1820s so Coleridge got around he liked visiting people and playing with their little kids um Coleridge thought that the Godwin girls were way too polite and restrained he was like Godwin buddy you gotta like let him loose a little bit he had a sort of children must be children philosophy which you might expect of a romantic poet and apparently his own son Hartley was basically a pint-sized tornado child who kicked Godwin in the shins when he eventually visited but um Godwin nevertheless let Coleridge try to draw the girls out of their shells and that apparently worked better for Mary than it did for Fanny. I wonder why. <laughs> Poor Fanny. So yeah, between visitors and, and, and their daily routine, they got along until about 1801 when everything changed because Mary Jane Claremont moved in next door. And I think this is a good time for a quick break, so we'll be right back with what happens next.
0: So welcome back, just to remind you, Mary Jane Claremont's just moved in next door, so let's introduce this eligible bachelorette, or maybe not, as the case may be. Mary Jane was 35 and was herself the mother of two small children, and I I hope I'm kind of not taking too many liberties to say that there are parallels between her life and Mary Wollstonecraft's. The way I kind of see it is, I don't know if you've seen um, Community, the TV show, but Mary Jane is kind of like the darkest timeline version of Mary Wollstonecraft. Yeah, I think there there are parallels, but I'm not saying that she's a great person like Mary Wollstonecraft probably was. So she'd actually run away from home as a teenager to live in France. She had cousins there, so she didn't just run away to nothing. But she'd grown up in France and she told people that she was a widower. But her two children, Charles and Jane, actually had two different fathers neither of whom had been married to mary jane which you know in this day and age no shame get it girl um, mm. but obviously in those times not everyone was as open-minded as william godwin and might have looked down on that so it seems like she decided that she wanted an alliance with an eligible widower and kind of set about preparing the way apparently undeterred by william's habit of announcing that nobody would ever be as perfect as mary wollstonecraft um, we definitely won't be able to get the rights to this, but I just want to invite listeners to imagine Sinead O'Connor's Nothing Compares to You playing in the background, <laughs> kind of. If you're familiar with the music video, imagine Godwin's face where O'Connor's is, because that's all I could think about when I was reading about this. So it turns out that Mary Jane had game. So I love this story of their first meeting. So supposedly he came out of his house and she's kind of conveniently just waiting outside, and... Um, And asks him is it possible that i I behold the immortal godwin and when he says yes it's me she clasps her hands and announces you great being how i adore you (laughs) um side note to any potential suitors would not object to being called a great being (laughs) so it seems like it was kind of a whirlwind the first meeting took place in may and by september mary jane was pregnant in december they're married Like you said earlier, Godwin's kind of moving away from his radicalism of being against marriage and probably does want to get this official, um, especially because of how they conduct marriages. So they have two weddings, a public wedding, which was actually illegal, where Mary Jane was called Mary Jane Claremont, and a private legal wedding under her real name, Mary Jane Vile.
1: Right, because Claremont is the, the, the fake name she's using as a widow, right?
0: Yeah, so Claremont is the name of her invented dead husband, (laughs) basically. Yeah, so they have a party that all their friends can go to and be like, oh, look, they've got a legit wedding. William's calmed down a bit. He's found someone to replace Mary Wollstonecraft finally. Um, And then also have this secret actual legal wedding. So it seems like Fanny and Mary agreed with Godwin that nothing compared to Wollstonecraft And if a replacement for their mother, or as Godwin put it in terms that definitely didn't psychologically damage them, second Mama, might be acceptable, then Mary Jane definitely was not it. So it seems like she was jealous and quick to anger and didn't shy away from making public scenes. By all accounts, she was as unabashed about public displays of affection as she was about other PDA, public displays of animosity. And Mary is a bit of a daddy's girl. You can kind of understand why when we you think about the fact that she was definitely a favourite. Yeah, Mary's a daddy's girl. She wasn't exactly overjoyed watching Godwin and Mary Jane acting like a pair of six teenagers doing things like snogging in the hallways, which I think is not not necessarily something anyone wants to see their parents doing, and definitely not if it's a stepmom that you don't like that much. Anyway, it turns out. Because of that early favoritism, the jealousy goes both ways. And to make up for what she thought was Godwin spoiling Mary, Mary Jane was extra harsh to her.
1: Yeah, but like in Mary Jane's defense, and nothing, I'm not trying to justify taking her feelings out on a child because there's nothing that would ever justify that. Um, in her defense in terms of her being always compared to Wollstonecraft, she was pretty bad bleep, like you've already mentioned uh, in her own right so a few other things that she did. During her lifetime, Mary Jane translated what was to become the definitive version of the Swiss family Robinson, uh, and it would stay the definitive version for quite a long time. She also survived a stint in debtor's prison, with her two small children in tow, and later, when debtor's prison seemed to be haunting her steps again, saved the Godwin Claremont family from drowning in debt— when Godwin's ability to command money based on his past literary success started to seriously wane. But that last bit's a tiny bit of a spoiler, so let's put a pin in it for just a moment.
0: Yeah, um, those facts are kind of the reason why I see Mary Jane as having quite a few parallels with Mary Wollstonecraft. Um, mm-hmm. You know, as well as gadging around Europe having illegitimate children, she also does this um, quite serious intellectual work. And yeah, like you say, she's a bad bee in her own right.
1: Mm -hmm. That didn't stop Little Mary from really amping up her animosity toward Mary Jane, though.
0: So Little Mary's animosity towards Mary Jane only grew worse when, after an early miscarriage, Mary Jane gave birth to Godwin's first son, who she named William after Godwin. Suddenly, Godwin's attention was on the line, and Mary acted out by turning everything into a battle what she wore on a given day to whether or not she'd do her chores, and whether or not she'd brush her hair.
1: How did the rest of the siblings take all these changes, you ask? Well, apparently during all the family drama, new brother Charles would just head outside and ramble around. A freedom I'm sure the girls were pretty jealous of, I would be. Um, Fanny faded more and more into the background, becoming basically a Cinderella figure in her efforts not to create conflict. So she'd just put her head down and like do whatever Mary Jane asked her to do. I feel you there, Fanny. I really hate conflict, too. Yeah. And Jane? Well, Jane decided to gun for Mary's position as Godwin's golden child.
0: Yeah, so in the summer of 1807, just before Mary turned 10, the family moved to London. This was, in part, at Mary Jane's ever more frantic prompting. After all... Godwin's earnings basically didn't change as the family literally doubled in size. So one day, or probably night given the circumstances, the family skipped out on back rent at number 29 Polygon and moved to 41 Skinner Street, where they opened a bookshop devoted to children's literature, which is actually one of the very first bookshops for children's literature. And they ran that out of the first floor of their new home. This was five stories tall and spitting distance from Newgate Prison, which is literally a block away and apparently from the upper floors they could watch prisoners being marched the gallows at Tyburn.
1: But it wasn't all bad in the new place. Surrounded by books, Mary became even more of a bookworm. Her father had her reading Rousseau and Locke when she wasn't busy helping to mind the shop. And basically, like, have you seen those family sitcoms where you've got, like, a really high IQ kid and, like, the parent quizzes them at the dinner table? That was Godwin and Mary. She would get quizzed, the other girls would just kind of sit there, like, Fanny trying to keep her head down, Jane simmering in her own rage at not being the center of attention, and Mary, like, being a little know-it-all, piping up with answers and opinions about all the stuff she's reading. <laughs> So during this time, um, one of my favorite anecdotes about the Godwin family, uh, happens. Um, the United States' third vice president, who is the former vice president at this point, Aaron Burr, started hanging around with Godwin. Why was he in London, you ask? Uh, Hamilton fans already know the answer to this question. Um, it's because after getting into a duel with Alexander Hamilton, he needed to get the heck out of Dodge for a while. So he made friends with all the Godwin Claremont kids and the family itself. Um, but he would especially take care to befriend the children, attending tea parties in their nursery, um, getting to know like each one and what they like, and etc. Uh, he was he he liked kids a lot. Um, and on one occasion, the kids put together a little tea party slash speech for him to attend. Uh, where Charles gave a speech that Mary wrote called The Influence of Government on the Character of the People. And while he like praised the tea and everything, he, he was all about that speech. So it's an early sign of Mary's talent as a writer. Yeah, that's adorable as well. Right. <laughs> so,
0: I'm <laughs> back again with some more... Slightly upsetting stuff, but although there were plenty of happy things and moments, the stress of family drama was unrelenting enough to cause Mary to break out in eczema all over her arms and hands. Papa and Stepmama, mostly Stepmama really, tried everything to treat the eczema, from trips to different doctors, to a stint convalescing at the seashore, but it just wouldn't let up. They even sent her away to boarding school at Ramsgate, which was on the seashore, thinking maybe that the first time at the sea just hadn't been long enough. Six months later, still no dice, and Mary was miserable to boot, which... I can relate to. When I was writing PhD applications for the first time, I have X and it flared up so badly, and if it's caused by stress, there's only one solution, which is to find a way to get rid of the stress.
1: Mm, I had no idea that it could be linked to stress. That's horrifying.
0: Yeah. Um, and it's, yeah, the creams that you would use for it usually don't really work because it's literally, you have to calm down.
1: Making matters even worse, when Mary got back home, she found that Jane, with her mother's help had still been gunning for the top kid slot all this time, even though Mary is gone because she's literally covered in an eczema outbreak. Jane is unrelenting. Um, So Mary Jane had paid to get Jane, and only Jane, French and singing lessons. And Jane would perform her new skills whenever they had visitors, uh, just sort of reveling in all of the attention.
0: So like, lots of people who've been away from home for a while. It seems like Mary just didn't know where she fitted anymore she grew more and more angry and miserable and her father had adopted an us against the kids policy with Mary Jane which is just excellent parenting Um, (laughs) (laughs) so he would always take Mary Jane's side over the children's obviously I'm not suggesting you should always take the children's side but maybe be fair about it would be my suggestion as a childless person
1: blanket policies just seem bad in general (laughs) yeah bad for everyone
0: like maybe it makes sense to any parents um to mary at least it seems it was probably felt like a betrayal mary jane would always be an interloper in her eyes fully filling her mother's shoes so yeah don't side with your kids all the time but also maybe don't side with her stepmom if she's doing things that aren't great
1: like only paying for lessons for her own children
0: Mm -hmm.
1: eventually things reached a breaking point Godwin decided to send Mary to stay with a fan of his, William Baxter, a man he'd never met, by the way. Um, Baxter had four daughters and lived in Scotland, so sort of his offer was appealing in that regard because it would get Mary far away, but also in a place that was considered more helpful, Um, and there were daughters there, so nothing bad could happen, right? Here's an excerpt from the letter Godwin wrote to Baxter in advance of Mary's arrival. Quote, I believe she has nothing of what is commonly called vices, and that she has considerable talent. I am anxious that she should be brought up like a philosopher. I do not desire that she should be treated with extraordinary attention. I wish, too, that she should be excited to industry. She has occasionally great perseverance, but occasionally, too, she shows great need to be roused. Same. (laughs) Relatable. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> like that's any description of uh i don't know i didn't know where my brain was going then <laughs> so on the 7th of june 1812 when mary was almost 15 years old she boarded a ship for scotland her father fanny and jane saw her off and godwin anxious at letting her travel alone but not at letting her move to a stranger's house found a maternal looking woman on board to care for her but the problems that most of us might see in finding a random lady who looks like she might be helpful soon come to her head. Um, basically, she just left as soon as Godwin was out of sight because she's got her own stuff to do. She doesn't need to have to look after a kid. Mm-hmm. The journey took a week, and in that week Mary would spend most of her time battling seasickness and having all of her money stolen. So maybe she did need someone to help her, but not a stranger.
1: Mm-hmm. Sounds like a really... Rough trip. Luckily, Scotland was not as much of a bust for her as the voyage over had been. Though the Scotland she arrived in was a powder keg. It's the Scotland of Walter Scott's Waverley, And Charlotte Gordon, whose biography of Mary Wollstonecraft and Mary Shelley is amazing, by the way, describes it this way. By June 1812, the Highlanders had surrendered to the crown, but they were still brandishing their swords, waiting for a chance to overthrow King William IV, rebels staged guerrilla attacks, sabotaging English troops if they ventured too deep into clan territory. The English commanders responded by torturing, jailing, and executing anyone suspected of fomenting revolt. Owning a bagpipe or even playing one could land a Highlander in prison. Tartans had been illegal for most of the century. Only recently had the ban been lifted.
0: Mary's house, the Baxters, lived in the village of Broughty Ferry, which is a little bit east of Dundee and near the southern highlands. For Mary, the time there was amazing. Baxter's daughters had more independence than most girls at the time, and Mary would reminisce that this period was an area of freedom for her. She spent hours alone walking through fields by the sea. Later in her life, she would pinpoint this time as the first time she started thinking about writing fantastic stories. Mary and Isabella Baxter wrote ghost stories and folk tales, rambling around the countryside and taking trips to Dundee together. At one point, they scratched their initials into a window in the upper story of the house. Slowly, the stress began to fall away. Mary's eczema cleared up and she was happy. Five months flew by and then, as the Baxters and her father had agreed, it was time for her to return home. All of the old drama and stress kicked right back in, maybe even amplified, but the Baxters wrote to invite her for another stay. And almost exactly a year later, in 1813, Mary was on her way back to Scotland.
1: So... Let's leave her there for a bit, on her way to her happy place. We'll pick up next time with what comes next. A fateful meeting, an elopement, and a life all her own.
0: Oh, I can't imagine who it'll be. <laughs> Sorry.
1: <laughs> Spoilers, Eleanor. <laughs> I didn't say anything. <laughs> thanks for listening.
0: Yes, thanks for listening, and we'll leave you wondering who she might meet
1: next time. Bye. Goodbye. Victorian Scribblers is researched, written, and produced by me, Courtney Floyd, and my co-host, Eleanor Dumbill. The podcast is made possible by support from listeners like you. If you liked what you heard today and want to help ensure more fabulous content, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes, spread the word on social media, and, if you can, visit www.victorianscribblers.com slash support us to donate. Every dollar helps provide us with things like web hosting, subscriptions to research databases, and recording equipment, which all helps us bring more content to you. The music and sound effects for this podcast are available under Creative Commons attribution licenses.
0: Our theme is Joseph Miroslav Weber's String Quartet, Number no. 2 in B Minor, performed by Steve's Bedroom Band. The music for our Around the World feature is Puddington Bear's Bitrio.
1: Our closing music this season is a 1911 recording of Come Josephine and My Flying Machine, performed by Ada Jones and Billy Murray, it's made available by the UCSB Cylinder Audio Archive.